Good evening. My name is Vivian Fisher, and I manage the African American Department here at the Central Library. And I'm serving as two roles this evening because I'm going to give you the welcome, and I'm also going to introduce our author. So let me get, begin by saying welcome to Naina Pratt Free Library on behalf of our CEO, Dr. Carla Hayden, the boards of trustees and directors, and the library staff. We welcome each and every one of you here this evening. It is also my pleasure to introduce our guest speaker this evening, Dr. Lawrence Jackson, who is a native Baltimorean, and he's also a professor of English and, English and African American Studies at Emory University. Professor Jackson earned his PhD at Stanford University in 1997, and he began his teaching career at Howard University in Washington, DC. He joined Emory's staff, faculty actually, in 2002, where he teaches English and African American studies. In 2001, he was the year also that he wrote his the biography, Ralph Ellison, Emergence of Genius, and in 2010, his work, The Indignant Generation, A Narrative History of African-American Writers and Critics, 1934 to 1960, was published. His latest book, My Father's Name, is the topic of discussion this evening. Also, he is working on a biography of Chester Himes, which I must say will be probably intriguing and fascinating because Himes was a character within his own right. Dr. Jackson has lectured widely in the United States and abroad, and he was featured in a 2002 documentary on Ralph Ellison's life. To give you a brief background of Professor Jackson's intellectual interests, he has taught courses, and I quote, primarily in the 19th and 20th century, African-American literature and culture. Shaped by his interest in urban studies, social class formation, realism and modern, modernism, popular culture, black nationalism, and decolonization theory. Wow. This evening, Dr. Jackson will discuss his new book, again, My Father's Name, A Black Virginia Family After the Civil War. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Lawrence P. Jackson back to the Enoch Pratt Free Library in his hometown, Baltimore. just want to thank you so much for such a generous and warm introduction. I have the good fortune today of uh, being in the, uh, the presence of family and friends. Um, my mother, Verna Jackson, uh, to whom the book is dedicated, and also my, um, I sometimes, I, not, not jokingly, but sometimes I say my intellectual mentor, but uh, my very good friend and um, the per another person to whom the book is dedicated and uh, someone who I think sets the standards for um, the highest intellectual integrity. A lot of people that profess to be intellectuals or profess to be public intellectuals or profess to be uh, black academics on the national scene, and then there are some people that, that really toe the line and actually do the necessary work that helps to transform um, African-American communities and African-American realities. And so I just want to acknowledge the chairperson of uh, African-American studies at Howard University, Greg Carr. And I'm just uh, delighted that my friend is here with me tonight. Also the, uh, the chairman, chairwoman of the uh, Department of English at uh, Howard University, Dana Williams, and also the uh, chairman of uh, the Department of English at Morgan State University, Dolan Hubbard. 
um, you know, it's, uh, it's wonderful to be able to share this work with people who have been with me um, throughout my intellectual journey. And of course, there are also um, other members of my family and my extended family. In the book, uh, The Indignant Generation, I tried to properly acknowledge people um, like my, uh, my great uncle, um, Harold Macklin, and like um, a uh, man from church, George Barrick, who helped teach me how to uh, master some, some carpentry skills. Uh, you know, I was, a, I was a poor apprentice, I'm sure. But uh, Mr. Burt, you know, I have gone on to make the shelves and the tables in my own home, so I, you know, I try to take that, take those lessons forward. But it's a, it's a, it's a very important and um, I think rare experience where we have the opportunity to be able to really share with the communities that have produced us. So, you know, again, thanks for coming out this evening, and I hope to tell you a bit about my my own family story. Um, the the book my father's name has a <clears throat> maybe a slightly interesting origin. The book was um, was constructed when I was waiting for um, galley galley proofs to come back to me from the publisher, and so I it was. It, that's a, for most writers, that's a moment of some trepidation. You know, you don't know how the work is going to be received by the press or by the uh, the readers, the anonymous readers who are going to review the work, and so you 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 don't know whether you're going to have you know sort of like a a week's worth of something that amounts to copy editing, or whether you're going to have six months worth of major revision that might you know throw off your entire production schedule. And during that time, I had the opportunity to really reflect on the journey that African Americans in Southside Virginia made in the years immediately after the Civil War concluded. And of course, I was reflecting on both sides of uh, you know, sort of that momentous um, uh, uh, moment, that epical moment in 1865. So I was thinking a lot about what happened in Pittsylvania County, named after William Pitt, the first Earl of Chatham. Uh, Pittsylvania County, I was thinking about it in the 1850s and the 1860s and in the 1870s. And my reflections were really based on my um, thoughts about the man who was my father's grandfather. And of course, you know, it's always a story within a story, but the, the, uh, the, the story really began when I, my wife and I, we learned that you know we were pregnant or she was pregnant, and um, we decided very early that if um, if the child were a boy, we would name him after my dad. And it's just again, it's just very special having my mother and my um, my close friend Greg here with us tonight because they were they were they were so much involved, you know, at very early on. And when Nathaniel, um, we actually you know we didn't do any of the um, the test that determined sex of the child or anything, so we didn't know until the day he was born that he would actually be Nathaniel. But I started to get this strong feeling, you know, like fathers do, right? I started to get this strong feeling there was going to be a boy about October of 2004. I went out, I bought a baseball mitt, I bought a football, you know, and I just sort of, uh, in fact, I was working I was um, I had a fellowship and I was in North Carolina for three months and so I would just sort of be standing in the yard after I finished reading or writing something you know, just sort of throwing the ball up and you know just sort of thinking about what was going to be in the future and one afternoon since I was living in Durham North Carolina which is about an hour's drive from Danville Virginia that's where my dad was born and one afternoon I said well you know let me see if I can drive up to Danville and find the place that we used to visit when I was a kid so I mean I'm sure we went there you know, when my sister was a child, my sister was born in 1963, I was born in 1968. 
But, you know, that was the journey that we used to make in the summer, um, you know, in the, I remember the early 70s, right? I mean, you know, with the, those, those years. Listening to AM radio, you know, no air conditioning, driving down the road, right? And um, we, would, we would stay at uh, the Holiday Inn and we would go to Long John Silver's and the Holiday Inn, had a, um, they had a sliding board into the pool. And so we thought that was great. And we used to go visit Grandpa Jackson's house. And it was in what I would call the country, but his house was by the railroad tracks. I mean, I didn't remember anything specific about it other than the fact that it was right along the, uh, the railroad track lines. It was a small bungalow that he shared with his sister and her husband. And so I spent an afternoon looking for this house. And as you can imagine, it was, you know, it was a um, uh, hit or miss sort of occasion. I mean, basically, I would drive up to people and would say, hey, if you were looking for an African-American man in the 1970s who had a house by the railroad tracks, where would he have to live? Right? I'm driving up and down the main routes and sort of going left or going right and whatever I thought was a reasonable distance. And what was really astounding was that at the end of the day, I, I located the house and I actually got some proof that it was their house because the guy that was living there, he had the bills that were still in my great aunt and my great uncle's name, you know, still in their names, the electric and the water bill. And then um, I found also, uh, not a mile away, uh, my cousins um, that I visited after my grandfather's funeral. And in fact, you know, one of my cousins remembered me. And we, we, um, there were three houses that they had, um, one after the other. <clears throat> and in the, in the last house, there was a picture of my grandfather when he was, you know, in his early 20s or late teens. Uh, my grandfather and his brother, his brother Hugh. And he had a haircut that I wore when I had hair, back in the day when I had hair. He had a haircut um, that we used to wear in the 1980s, and we called it the Gumby because, I guess, Eddie Murphy had said something about the Gumby on Saturday Night Live, and we you know, wanted to have this haircut. But uh, there was my grandfather wearing the haircut in the um, you know, World War I era. And it really just sort of caused me to have a great curiosity. And that's you know, the, the, basically the genesis of this story. What I wanted to share with you specifically tonight is a, is a passage at the end. In some ways, it's the ta-da moment. It's the, uh, the conclusion of the story. I was hoping to find out who were my earliest ancestors named Jackson. And the earliest person actually was Edward Jackson, who seems to have been born in 1855 and who is enumerated on the census for the first time, his full name, in 1870 when he was 15 and he was working as a domestic servant, um, seems to have been working on the land of a man named Levi Hall who had owned slaves in 1860 and was a somewhat prosperous but small-time tobacco farmer. He had about, in 1870, Levi Hall had like, uh, 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 I want to say 3,000 pounds of cured tobacco. Um, and maybe that would have been like... Um, I, I have the more precise uh, figures, but you know it's not—it's it, not as much as you would, as you might imagine, you know. And, and the way they would pack this tobacco into uh, barrels and then transport the barrels, you know, sort of usually by river, maybe by that time, by the 1870s, by railroad. But you know, I was interested in the earlier modes of transportation. And they would pack them and then you know sort of get them to the coast and then you know to the other to the markets, a lot of European markets as you can imagine. But you know, wherever tobacco is going to be consumed. Um, Pennsylvania was the leading tobacco-producing county in Virginia 
1870, and it always competed with Halifax County, which is the county immediately east and from which Pennsylvania is created, um, for the leading tobacco county. Um, you all might know something about American slavery, the way that uh, um, American slavery operated. And in a place like Virginia, definitely by the, you know, by the 19th century, sort of the, the, uh, the ordinary logic is that we're dealing with small farms and relatively small holdings of, of um, enslaved people, enslaved people of African descent. Um, in Pennsylvania, it, was, it, 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 it differed from the norm a bit because they were, they were able to make so much money growing tobacco. So they, there were many slaveholders there who had large holdings of people. In fact, the person who was rumored to have been the, the uh, wealthiest American in the 1840s and 1850s, um, uh, uh, now for whatever reason I'm blanking on the name, um, I was getting ready to say the name of the guy that founded Virginia Tech, um, Thomas Sutherland, who was the mayor of Danville. He was wealthy, but um, it's, the, it's this other family that was the you know, sort of extraordinarily wealthy family. They were thought to be more wealthy than, than the Vanderbilts. But they owned um, you know, closer to 1,000 people in different farms throughout Pennsylvania, in North Carolina, in Halifax, in uh, the adjacent counties. So it was a, you know, it was a large empire of um, some, some large tobacco growers. And if you're doing genealogical research, sometimes that can be very helpful because these people tend to leave fairly uh, intricate records. You know, like they have farm books, they were employing a series of overseers, you know, they paid taxes, and they, they, they tended to have, you know, sort of a large operation, they kept a lot of records. Um, my ancestors, but especially this man, Edward Jackson, and his father-in-law, they were the ones that are really at the center of the book. His father-in-law's name was Granville Hunley. Granville Hunley bought, he bought 40 acres and a mule in 1877. You know, again, you know, don't, don't believe, you know, it's like lies my, my history teacher told me, right? You know, don't believe that anything was given away. Um, he bought the land, um, but these men seem to have been owned or seem to have uh, lived on small farms, you know, in sort of remote portions of the county. And so un uncovering their lives really required a leap of faith. And, and before, before I read the, um, the section, um, I, I should say that, you know, I read uh, Toni Morrison's novel, Beloved, I'm, I'm sure I read it in college. Um, I don't think I could have avoided having read it in college, probably towards the end of college. The novel was published in 87, 88. <clears throat> but the, the book that really, really influenced me was a novel called The Cheneysville Incident by David Bradley. And the way that that book unfolds, it's about a historian who's trying to uncover his past. And he ultimately decides that the facts that he has at hand are inadequate to um, take him all of the way back and that he has to have like a leap of faith and he has to imagine what might have occurred to in some ways overcome some of the damaging legacies of American slavery. And that is also something that I, that I deal with um, in different places and at, at different lengths, sometimes at length um, in the book. Um, I was just very surprised, or, and I shouldn't say that, but I was, I was certainly, um, uh, I had to pause when I got the reader's reports back from this work. Um, this is from an academic press, and the academic press will always send 
your manuscript out to other academics and ask them if you have the facts right or, you know, if this can be sort of, uh, um, if it will stand up to inquiry. And one of the, uh, the, the, the reviewers, you know, God bless them, said, I'm not sure that this is a book that white people would like. <laughs> And as you know, I mean, again, those of you who know me, as you can imagine, you know, you know, you say, well, Larry said he hit the nail on the head at, at that point. But it was, you know, it was just sort of, it was interesting because what I found as I was, you know, sort of turning over the stone, as I was turning the spade, um, that there was a kind of residual bitterness that um, that 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 kept that kept coming forth, and it was. Um, it was a, um, a very complicated emotional experience for me as a writer and as somebody who was dealing with what is not the distant past, but which is actually, you know, from my view, it's actually the near past. Um, and again, I'm, I'm the, the, much of this narrative is about a person who was my dad's grandfather. Okay, so I'm going to read. Um, I read about uh, five or six pages from the, the chapter. It's called My Inheritance, and it's sort of the conclusion of, the, um, of the, the narrative. I made a fell swoop through central Virginia in the late winter of 2009, from the south side up through Charlottesville to Richmond, and then I doubled back to Danville. A cool, misty rain prevailed through forests filled with gray, leafless trees. The trip was filled with extraordinary surprises. I spent a day in Charlottesville, where my sister had attended the state's flagship university. I recalled my family admiring the lawn, where select undergraduates were housed in rows of early 19th century brick motels with wood-burning fireplaces. In a week and a half, my sister would be, calling it the school, would be calling the school Mr. Jefferson's University. By contrast, when it had been time for my father to attend college, he would have been wasting his time to have submitted an application to the best public university in the state of his birth. We breakfasted in a student cafe called The Treehouse, where we couldn't avoid noticing a pimply, hatchet-faced, white undergraduate shoveling his eggs and bacon into his mouth. It seemed with both hands. My father looked with disgust on the boy eating breakfast. He's going to run the country one day, he said. Clearly, and I thought, loud enough to be overheard. He should eat properly. As the iron-tapped heels of my father's penny loafer scraped the brick paths during that trip in 1981, his thoughts must have contained wry combinations of resentment, surprise, and regard, layered conjunctions of the present and the past. I gave a drizzly Saturday to the university's Albert and Shirley Small Special Collections Library, beginning with the computerized index for Pennsylvania County Holdings. The library, two underground floors completed in 2004, was designed in a manner guaranteed to be a marvel for old-time Virginians. Quaint but technologically modern and finished in a blend of wood and brick that Jefferson would have understood as complementary to his overall design, it fulfilled some kind of longing for beauty within me too. I considered the items that I might get at within an afternoon. The Hairston family papers were there. That's the name of the family, the, uh, the Hairstons. They were the, the wealthy ones. The Hairston family papers were there, so I looked up the scraps of paper they used to make contracts with freedmen in the years after the Civil War and thumbed through their account books, which showed, among other things, how much they paid to have a physician ride up to a slave cabin and administer a potion. I photographed 19th century Virginia County maps, putting them underneath the table to block the fluorescent light and jerry-rigging chairs to keep the glare off of the mylar protective coverings. I tracked down some of the records from the Brightleaf Tobacco Manufacturing Company, 
printed on corporate stationery emblazoned by the symbol of their wealth. Small Special Collections closes at 5 o'clock on Saturdays. Each special collections library is unique, but they all demand a myriad of paper application forms that have to go to their librarians, who then bring out the requested materials, sometimes only one at a time, and sometimes only two or three times per day. The librarians at Small were trying to be helpful, though we had some misfires along the way, since I had to explain to the staff, from docent to work-study student to curator to assistant director, the kinds of things I was looking for, my purpose, and my professional credentials, and all this with the clock running. Of all the requests I placed that afternoon, the one I knew least about was a simple series of records called Pittsylvania County Ledgers. I submitted a call slip for it only because it was supposed to contain some antebellum materials. It was the last box I opened late in the afternoon, around the time that fatigue was setting in. The ledgers were commonplace books, and I looked through them as carefully as I could. As usual, I was hunting for needles and pinheads. The last time in the box, the last item in the box, left out of the enumeration in the computer category, was a worn calfskin account book about the size of a checkbook. On its front, I could decipher a name inked in cursive handwriting, V. Dickinson. Vincent Dickinson was a son of the highly esteemed Pennsylvanian Reverend Griffith Dickinson, who also had a son named Griffith, who was one of John Hunley's trading partners. I had dredged up a personal account book of an estate sale. John Hunley seems to have owned um, my uh, great-grandfather Edward Jackson's father-in-law, my great-grandmother Celestia Hunley Jackson's father, Granville Hunley. In his will of 1843, Reverend Dickinson attested that he was of tolerable health and disposing mine. In disposing of my Negroes, he continued, I desire every feeling of humanity to be regarded in parting husband and wife, parent and child. A Revolutionary War veteran, Dickinson lived in eastern Pennsylvania and departed his earthly life at the age of 86 on October 16, 1843. Part of the chiseled inscription on his soapstone Graveyard Memorial proclaims that he had died trusting in a crucified savior. The pious reverend had lived well in a two-story, six-room house built about 1800, seven miles southeast of a Pennsylvania town today called Gretna, 10 miles north of Chatham. Constructed with hand-hewn beams, two large chimneys on either side, and two sets of stairs, one in front and one in the back for servants, one assumes, it was a basic farmhouse made elegant by the gables, windows, and piazza extending from the front and one side of the home. By the mid-1850s, the eldest son, Vincent Dickinson, came into possession of a good portion of his father's estate. Vincent Dickinson was a literate man who wrote in a nice, tidy script. He was 74 in 1860 and was keeping four Negro houses on his place. His oldest slave was a 60-year-old black man, and he also owned four women in their 20s and 11 children under the age of 10. Among the children were two boys who Dickinson said were four years old at the time, roughly the age of my great-grandfather, Edward. In that year, time or bad luck or profligate habit caught up with Vincent Dickinson. He had borrowed money from Joseph Terry, at least $10,000 over time, and the bill came due. In April, he prepared to liquidate his estate, 
beginning with his 888-acre home parcel on the Stinking River, and another that size by Brushy Mountain. Then, on June 12, 1860, neighbors from Pennsylvania poured onto the Dickinson farm and bought his carryalls and iron tools, the plows, size, and cradles, and they proceeded to purchase his 16 enslaved people. Dickinson had probably set up a table on his large porch to conduct the business while his property crowded the yard. The script of the ledger that I held was perfectly legible, as were the abbreviations Vincent Dickinson used. On page five, at the bottom, I saw clearly the intimate hand noting that on June 14, 1860, he was receiving $1,690, George W. Hall, for purchase of Sandy. An enslaved man named Sandy, who had belonged to the Dickinson estate, had been sold to Pennsylvania's professional Negro trader, George Hall. I'm not able to put into words how I was affected by reading this line. I could mainly consider what the event must have meant to my ancestor, Edward Jackson, who, on the day before he got married, told the county clerk that Sandy Dickerson was his father. And so, you know, there's a, there's a, there are a couple of chapters before there's a bit of a buildup to this, uh, to this moment, but, but this was the, um, this was a, a crucial piece of evidence in reconstructing the family history, and especially because the names changed. And I was having difficulty understanding why my ancestor had Sandy and Jenny Dickerson as his parents. His name was Edward Jackson. He never lived with them. There never seemed to be any other older adults in his household. Um, what is it that happened? Okay. I found a transcendent value contained in this leather-bound ledger with its translucent onion-skin pages. The ledger itself took on the heft of a slave's chain, lashed like a whip, burned like a hot brand, and a great deal more. It was an actual physical object held in the hand and written on by the man who had sold Sandy Dickerson. The same man who had held an ancestor of mine in bondage owned it. It was a document that in a sense directed me, shaped my own life, because of its withering power over one of my forebears. And of course it was a document I would like personally to destroy, not because I wished for another past, but because I thought it cruel that even the documents of the injustice should be so lovingly preserved. And with all the precaution that the illustrious university had taken in constructing this climate-controlled bunker, where security cameras and portraits and busts of Washington and Jefferson, Emerson Longfellow and William Cullen Bryant oversaw my perch, I doubt that they had factored in the possibility of a slave's descendant's tears erasing the ledger of slavery, or his phlegm, for that matter. I was reminded of a sentence from a famous book. If you go there, you who never was there, if you go there and stand in the place where it was, it will happen again. It will be there for you, waiting for you. And it is one thing to read about it and another when it happens to you. And I am not sure if I want to be standing in the Dickinson yard, seven miles southeast of Gretna on June 14, 1860, while the factors make their decisions from the porch where the son of the preacher placates the people he owns with the ever-ready Bible verse that pious masters dished up to quiet the enslaved. Chronicles 2, chapter 2, verse 17. Ye shall not need to fight, 
Stand ye still and see the salvation of the Lord. So I stood up and walked out of the room and tried to regain my composure, thinking how any kind of sentimentality, anger, or weepy sadness was the worst response. I wish I could find one of the library's black custodians to talk to, who could relate to what had happened. It was one of those times when you need your people. When I piece the ledger together with some background from the county courthouse and the U.S. Census, I'm able to produce a story that makes sense to me. For $1,690, his earthly master sold Sandy, a 40-year-old blacksmith, to George Hall. Thomas Martin purchased Sandy's wife, Jenny, and her children, Patsy and Langford, for $2,050. Sandy may have been sold out of the county immediately, though he seems to have made it back to Pennsylvania by 1870. But he and Jenny and Patsy and Langford were not living together that year. Perhaps Jenny had died. Perhaps she joined $50,000 worth of Negroes destined for the Southern market. One of the great, um, one of the great genocidal horrors uh, that takes place in Virginia, there's an estimate about exactly when it occurs. Uh, one of the estimates is that it takes place roughly between 1861 and 1865 is something um, just shy of 100,000 people of African descent being marched, forced marched to Texas. And it's not clear, you know, how many complex pieces of transportation, you know, were used. Obviously, by 1860, people are taking trains to the new cotton fields. I mean, you know, it's just sort of this remarkable moment of industrialization meeting chattel slavery. I mean, meeting, um, you know, sixth uh, century B.C. forms of bondage. But um, I'm, I'm, I, I can never be certain, you know, precisely what happened to, um, to my ancestors. Perhaps Jenny had died, perhaps she joined the Negroes destined for the Southern market. It was a part of the sad irony of what was called the chattel principle, setting a price and exchanging a piece of currency. Sandy had become so good at what he did, he had made so much of himself under enslavement that even in the eyes of masters predisposed to keeping families together, he and his family were too expensive to purchase in a single lot. Husband and wife were separated from each other and from their children, most likely forever. I'll never know if the person who grew to be the man, Edward Jackson, was in that yard by the gabled frame house that day. There's a decent probability that he was, and it might conceivably have been the last time he saw his mother. Moreover, this could explain Edward's first career in domestic service if he'd been groomed early on to wait the Dickinson's parlor table. There were even oblique clues explaining his arrival on the farm of Levi Hall by 1870, perhaps 15 miles due south of the Dickinson place. Griffith Dickinson had married a woman named Susanna Shelton, and my ancestor Edward Jackson may have somehow belonged to her as a dower slave, which might have prevented his sale and consequent mention in the wills of any Dickinsons. Levi Hall's in-laws were Nancy and Henry Shelton, who had bought Sandy Creek land early in the 19th century, and probably Susanna Shelton was related to them. If my reconstruction of the events was even slightly accurate, how did the two parents and the children brave that fateful day? Did they recite to each other, God moves in mysterious ways his wonders to perform? Although I wanted to find a piece of tangible proof connecting Edward to Sandy and Jenny, I was better off without such a burden. Was I better off without such a burden, such a cavern that I had then to fill with remorse? 
If a little boy named Edward had fallen into the hands of Sandy Creek slave owners after that June day on Dickinson's farm in 1860, was acute trauma behind his choice of another name? Was selecting a new name his way of countering the death of his mother or the end of his childhood? Perhaps his picking the Jackson surname was as simple as this. In the 1840s, John Hubbard, the proprietor of the Sandy Creek Mill, married a woman named Ann Eliza Jackson. In his 1846 will, Ann's father, William Jackson, left his daughter and his son-in-law several tracts of land north of Birch Creek. Jackson was an affluent planter and miller, and he controlled a farm by the name of Kirby Jackson and Anderson. He also operated a mill on Birch Creek called Jackson and Anderson Mill. The acres planted by the tobacco farmer Levi Hall lay in what Hall called fall level, probably not quite a mile south of Sandy Creek, and probably somewhere between Fall Creek to the west and Birch Creek to the east, on, on the other side of the road from Edward Williams. And I'll read something when I conclude. This is the, we're at the final paragraph. I'll read something that will um, shed more light on this geography. That really was a great part of the project, recovering the, uh, the geographical terrain of my ancestor and my ancestor's land. The Jackson Mill couldn't have been far from Levi Hall's place, and perhaps Edward knew Reuben, Billy, Phyllis, Jane, Alice, or Dick, who had been owned by Jackson in 1846. Perhaps he knew that they said Jackson was a decent man. Maybe the black people living between the two creeks knew Ann Hubbard to possess excellent human qualities, but her husband did not have the same kind of reputation, so Edward connected her estimable qualities to her Jackson origins. Perhaps he would have taken any local name other than Dickinson. The triumph was that I was finally able to take my great-grandfather Edward Jackson at his word. I believe Sandy and Jenny Dickerson were his parents. I think it doubtful that the slave-swapping Vincent Dickinson could have imagined that one of Sandy's descendants would one afternoon retrieve the account and reinterpret the meaning of the ledger. The clouds from that day might release a drop of life if I can leap forward too. Okay, thank you. I, I, like I said, I finished this section, but let me just read one small snippet. This is a... Um, this is the, the, uh, the way your land would be entered into the county records if you were fortunate enough to you know, purchase your own land you know, sort of in rural Virginia shortly after the Civil War. But if you recall any of the names, you'll hear why the, um, the plot was significant. Edward Jackson, when he and Celestia Hundley married in 1878, they worked as farmers on her father's land, and then when her father, Granville Hunley, died in 1893, he split up the land and he gave it to his sons and daughters. So then they wound up with about six or seven acres uh, to, uh, to, um, to have as their own, which, which, which they then had seemed to have lost by 1900. But this is the way that the, uh, the deed demarcated, um, you know, sort of a, a, a section of land. So Granville Hunley's land um, is recorded as follows. A parcel of land lying in the county of Pennsylvania and adjoining the lands of Dr. Edward Williams, William E. Farrell, John Hunley, and others, beginning at Smith Old Path, where Dr. Edward's line crosses the same, thence the old path to cross paths that lead to Hubbard's Mill, thence straight line to a large poplar in William E. Farrell line at an elbow, 
thence Pharrell line to John Hubbard to Dr. Edward Williams line to the old Smith path at the beginning, supposed to contain 50 acres more or less. And I was able to ultimately identify um, Granville Hunley's, the, 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 one of the rough demarcating points of his, his uh, lot, because Edward Williams' house still stands and actually has been refurbished by um, people who are the descendants of um, some of the neighborhood slaveholders. And they live there today, and uh, Edward Williams' um, cemetery plot on his land you know, is legible, and you can see his, uh, his, his tombstone and the tombstones of his family members. But it was the, it was the concrete example of, you know, sort of precisely where my, my ancestors were, um, you know, sort of during the era immediately after the Civil War, but in all likelihood um, for a generation or more um, prior to that time. So thank you very much. I would love to have discussion and take questions. If you have any questions, come to the mic, please. When, uh, when you were doing your research, how did you feel the uh, Reconstruction era impacted the black families in Virginia or overall in the South? And how did Reconstruction really, did you feel as Reconstruction really helped the black cause, the African-American cause, or did it really, you know, what was your opinion on that? You know, I mean, I want to say, well, these are the notes of the hanging judge. I mean, I, this is the uh, this is definitely the underside of uh, of, of history. This is not the um, you know the the, the gleeful uh, rags to riches story. It's not the Horatio Alger story. I mean, which is a popular narrative from the 19th century. It seems to me, or it, it's very difficult for me to find a lot that was optimistic about Reconstruction. Right, the brief period 1865 to 1877, when you have so many federal troops throughout the South. And maybe it was most complex in Virginia or certainly very complex in Virginia, um, you know, in South Carolina. I mean, I know there are many people here today who have South Carolina roots. It seems to me, I mean, you know, I'm doing this research for Chester Himes' family, his family, both sides of his family were in South Carolina during Reconstruction. It seems like South Carolina was the black mecca during yes. Reconstruction that African-Americans actually moved, but maybe especially from Georgia, to South Carolina because, you know, they recognized that they were going to have, you know, political power. And they did exercise a, a great degree of political power during that time. The situation seems to me, you know, I mean, again, I was looking very closely at Pennsylvania and there's a, one of the real crises in information dealing with this populous Southside County is that the newspapers were destroyed in fire in around the turn of the century. So there's very slight day-to-day -day accounts of what life was like, even from the perspective of, say, a Democratic newspaper. But, um, you, you know, I mean, so just to try to get more directly to your question, in, um, when the when the cavalry arrived um, in Pennsylvania, you know, and Jefferson Davis is fleeing the city, this is the last seat of the uh, Confederate government in Danville at um, William T. Sutherland's house, which when my dad was growing up was the public library that he couldn't use, and you know today is a private museum. Um, they uh, they passed the the Union troops passed a general order, and the general order in by June of 1865 required all the freedmen to return to the farms where they had endured servitude, um, and were required to stay there to bring in the crop. And when you look at the accounts from the Freedmen's Bureau, the uh, the cases that went um, before you know sort of uh, federal 
federal judge advocates. I mean, you know, military judges, military tribunals in a sense. Um, those, those trials suggest a great deal of animosity and hostility directed, violent animosity and hostility directed toward freedmen by former slaveholders. My uh, great-grandfather was living in a neighborhood that was populated by men who had served in the 38th Virginia Infantry and the, the 57th uh, Virginia Infantry. Those were the last regiments engaged at Pickett's Charge. So I don't know if any of you all know anything, you know, sort of Civil War history, but you know that Gettysburg was the was the turning point, you know, in a lot of ways for um, for the Union. Unpopular war. W. B. Du Bois makes the argument that it's the 200,000 African American troops who fight for the Union that win the war, that it would have been possible to win the war without uh, the black soldiers, especially fighting in the West. Because we're in Maryland, we tend to think of the war, you know, the great Virginia War, really. I mean, so, many of the com so much of the conflict taking place there in the Army of Northern Virginia. But, but um, these regiments, they were the last troops engaged in that battle. They, you know, arguably, if they had been successful, um, they might have won at Gettysburg. So I think that it must have been very complicated. I mean, a number of the people from the neighborhood are killed during Pickett's Charge. I think it must have been very complicated for freedmen whose white neighbors, um, who had you know dim economic prospects. I mean, the land, the bottom went out of land ownership. The tobacco prices fell in the uh, 1860s and 1870s. I mean, it was it was tough, and in the 1880s. Um, it, you know, it just seems like they were uh, up against a rock and a hard place. And in fact. I know I'm not really precisely interested, but you get the general tenor of this. But in fact, what I suspect in the book is that a man like my great-great-grandfather, Granville Hunley, who was born in 1815, and who, I, I don't know whether he was sold into Pennsylvania at one point. He doesn't show up on personal property tax lists until the late 1840s. But um, it seems to me as if he had stronger relationships with whites, stronger economic opportunities and possibilities as a member of the generation that gave the best years of their lives to servitude than did my you know more immediate ancestor Edward Jackson who was born in 1855 whose best the best years of his working life in a sense went to what was becoming you know sort of the debt peonage sharecropping system so uh, you know I mean in some ways that was the that was the the, the thing that um, was unusual, and you know, I'm I'm really I'm just building off of the work of people like, like Ira Berlin, the University of Maryland historian, you know, who has a, a interesting account. He talks about generations in captivity, but that for each generation, the experience can be so markedly different. But for uh, someone like Edward Jackson, whose whose tail end of slavery, I mean, it has a lot to do with people being sold off to distant distant parts of the South. You know, with these coffles of uh, manacled people marching, being marched, you know, um, marched away, with the families being uh, broken up, and I think that that experience was just very difficult to recover from. The animosity of so many of the people at the end of the Civil War, the outcome of the Civil War, um, and it, I think that in some ways it it continued. One of the things that's curious, I haven't been able to determine if the men were able ever able to vote, or you know, sort of if they voted. They had a brief period where there was a, you know, there was an interracial readjuster party. It was actually headed by um, a guy who had been a popular Confederate general named, um, I, I think it's, I think it's William Mahone. I know his last name is Mahone, and you know there were some 
there were some blacks who uh, served as uh, peace officers in Danville, and I think that some people even got on city council. But by the um, by the mid 1880s, you know, we think of the 1896 Plessy versus Ferguson decision, sort of between 1877 withdrawal of the federal troops and 1896 and the Plessy versus Ferguson decision as this this moment of tumult where um, you know Jim Crow is being instituted and where race relations are approaching what the historian Rayford Logan called the nadir of race relations. But um, it's, it's actually in you know, somewhat urban Danville that you get one of the first you know, large riots where mobs of armed whites, I mean, you know, Demo Democrats, Democratic mobs, um, you know, begin to um, shoot down um, uh, basically black citizens, but I mean, you know, black people who seem to be um, demanding their rights. And in fact, uh, it became the, 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 the town of Danville, and one must suspect, I mean, in some ways, the, the county itself, I mean, it became a, a kind of a um, uh, hardline uh, racial place, you know, ahead of other parts of the United States. Um, Virginia, of course, is understood by many of us to be a place of moderate slavery and fairly moderate race relations. You know, you look at, for example, at the lynching record and you say, well, you know, I mean, you know, Virginia's not Georgia and Mississippi. And, but it seems to me that uh, the period of adjustment after the Civil War was actually quite deadly and, and very difficult and that maybe just in Virginia things happened um, 10 years in advance of other parts of the country. Did, did I get at what you were saying? Yeah. With, uh, oh, with Ter Terry and then Lisa and, you know. Uh, good afternoon, uh, Dr. Jackson. Uh, brother brother Terry. It's That's a pleasure right. always. Um, as you spoke, is there a connection between the Freemans Bureau and the subsequent incarceration of black males and when we look at it in terms of the free labor system, which still goes on today, as a matter of fact, is there a connection in terms of what was it? Was there influence from the Freemans Bureau in terms of that? I have to say two things because, you know, in some ways you touch on the, uh, the popularization of much of this in the work of Douglas Blackman, uh, the uh, Wall, Street, Wall Street Journal bureau chief from Georgia who has a book called Slavery by Another Name that talks about um, uh, 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 um, basically slave labor for uh, heavy, southern heavy industry. Um, at the end of the 19th century and through the 20th century. And I have a, I have a section, a, sort of a one-liner, sort of a throwaway liner about seeing Douglas Blackman speak and uh, my sons Nathaniel and Mitchell being with me and people wanting Nathaniel and Mitchell to be quiet so that they could hear the, uh, the wonders of uh, Mr. Blackman. And, you know, I mean, again, it, was a, it certainly is a startling account, but I, 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 have, this, I have this sort of, um, I guess, tongue-in-cheek um, relationship with um, um, people who have, a, um, I would just say, sometimes it seems to me like a short-term or sometimes a somewhat selfish interest in elements of our story. At the same time, you know, I, it has to be said that the only way that I knew about these um, slave labor camps after slavery was over was through the work of people like August Wilson and Ralph Ellison and John Oliver Killens. In other words, through our fiction writers who, you know, use these um, these important stories that black men had been telling each other for 100 years or more, but that everybody discounted. And in some ways, it's the same thing about the um, 
the prison industrial complex today. I mean, you know, black men, we have been telling <laughs> one another for quite some time, you know, that, hey, there's, there's a little bit more to this than just, you know, somebody wants to take you, <laughs> take you and check you out. Um, so the, the connection that, that, that's curious about um, Virginia is that you find in 1867, by 1867, they are aggressively changing the state codes so that vagrants will be sentenced to the chain gang and so that they will have to pay costs. And so that, you know, whatever you're served by the sheriff, the person, the clerk who writes it up, you know, there's a fee with each one of these um, moments of adjudication, and that has to be paid by the person who is convicted of the crime. Um, you know, and again, not having 50 cents or I don't know what was at that time, 10 cents or not. Again, people are being convicted because they have left their Freedmen's Bureau generated contract without the consent of the landowner. Okay, so it was, it, it seems to me that in a place like Pennsylvania, it was always, you know, fairly, fairly vigorous. The, the, the caution, of course, is that um, interpersonal relationships sometimes were successful in going against legal codes. Um, so some people, you know, just because it was the law doesn't mean that they suffered acutely from that. Um, I, I think that it's important for all of us to investigate our own family trees and write up these histories and look for these gaps. Edward Jackson, for example, um, you know, got married in 1878. He had children so regularly, it doesn't seem to me like he was ever, you know, sort of taken away and put on a work farm or something. So he seemed to have been, you know, faithfully in his field, you know, behind the mule or what have you. But that was certainly a frequent occurrence throughout throughout the South. Um, I, I have a question. Okay. Um, and I guess I'm a feminist, very strong. Um, and most people write about their father. Had you ever considered the Mitchell? side of the family um well you bet you went back to, to you went be, back to the other father you was interesting you know you went is, back to is the there father. going to be another my father my mother's name well that would be that's what i'm saying you went to my mother's father's name so i i, I would be interested the, the no, one I'm, i was thinking about really um uh, uh was the uh my mother's mother's name uh, the Macklin side of the family. I, I've done a little bit of the, um, the history there. In fact, the way that the thing sort of officially got underway, I mean, when I started looking at, for example, census records uh, very deliberately, this took place because I was teaching a class on the slave narrative. It was an early morning class. But now look, I looked out at you all. I, what did I do? I did about a half hour. I didn't see anybody nodding or, you know, I didn't see any eyes glaze over. You all did a great job. You know, you should give yourselves a hand. <laughs> But, but I, you know, I, I've taught these classes and people are ready to pass out. I mean, you know, you, you, you talking about Frederick Douglass. I mean, I can't get over this story of this man, Solomon Northup, who's born in New York, raised in Saratoga Springs or that area, uh, is a good musician. He's convinced by a couple of people in a circus to go to Washington, D.C. They drug him, knock him out, and sell him into 12 years of slavery on the Red River in Louisiana. I mean, that, 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 that makes my hair stand on end. You're getting the hair that I have left. It makes it stand on end. Um, so these, uh, these undergraduates, they were so blasé about the, the horrors of what happened that I said, well, you know, maybe it would seem more real to you if, you know, you could see 
um, the the uh, the ancestors of someone that you know. And and if you all might understand, of course, that slavery was something that embarrassed black people for very many years. I mean, you didn't want to talk about it. You didn't want to admit to having been enslaved or being related to people who were enslaved. You know, all my ancestors were free. I mean, that sort of thing, right? Um, so, you know, I went through a couple of the census documents and, you know, um, just wanted to show them what it would, what it, what it looked like, what it, what it meant um, to have a sense that, you know, some of your people were probably owned by this farmer and they're on Schedule Two of the U.S. Census in 1860, and uh, the uh, the people are given a color, um, black or mulatto. They're given a rough estimate of their age. Most of the slave owners grouped the people that they owned in sort of five-year increments. You know, you'd have a lot of people who'd be 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, and so on. I mean, really, that was the main increment because there's not so many people living after 40 and 50 um, under the slave regime. And, and just to, to, to have this information that was so um, generic, so vague, so obscure, so um, dehumanizing in a sense. And the, it, um, I don't know that it roused them at all, but it did sort of for me, you know, begin, the, um, begin part of the journey. Uh, on my, on my, um, my mother's mother's side of the family, one of her ancestors, a man named Nathaniel McClinn, was enslaved in 1850 and was free in 1860. And it sort of seems to be a fascinating story. I thought about going further with that one, but I wanted to write this book for my sons because they didn't know their grandfather. You know, My dad passed away when I was in college, so I wanted, I wanted my sons to have a sense of you know, what that part of the family was like. I know, Lisa, please, what's your question? Okay, I have a, I have a story. From Virginia, she would have been born just after, like the early 1900s. I heard she escaped slavery in Virginia and walked to Baltimore. Did you find any reference to slavery-like conditions lasting in Virginia? To 1900, so. And it, it probably. Yeah, and probably even in the teens because she would have been a teenager. She was a teenager when she walked. Okay. Um, the, the here again, the the short answer is no. These things are not being worked into historical accounts, more or less. I mean, these are these are family, they're family narratives. They are crucial to our understanding of what took place and the conditions that people endured and overcame. The, um, the one thing that I bring up in the book is, you know, the, the, the accounts of the roughness of the transition after the emancipation, I mean, not the emancipation, but after the Civil War had concluded, where you did have, I mean, there's, there, there seemed to be very many records of people who were held forcibly in bondage by, I mean, you, the, the Direct example I'm talking about is somebody that was owned by a man that rode with Nathan Bedford Forrest, right? The founder of the Ku Klux Klan, uh, somebody who participated in massacres of black troops. One thing that you all must know, I just had to say this: there's a historian named Thavolia Glimpf who teaches at uh, she teaches at Duke University now, and uh, Professor Glimpf makes the point that at the end of Civil War battles, when the Confederate troops are victorious, she says that invariably 
there are examples of massacres of black women and black children. This is very important for us to to know about and to think about and to, again, demand an account from our historical uh, figures, especially during sesquicentennial of the Civil War. You will see a great deal of romanticization of this conflict. And, you know, the conflict wasn't about black people, wasn't about slavery, didn't really involve black people, didn't really involve slavery. But on virtually every one of these battlefields, you had black people in numbers. And um, that is that is more than chilling to me, um, Professor Glimpf's um, research, you know, she's reading these uh, reports that um, I suppose union officers are making at the end of the battle where they're sort of talking about the, the dead that they see on the field. That is, um, that's very important to know. The, um, so the, the account that I was talking about, Lisa, was a guy who was born in Virginia, sold into Mississippi, and then he had this man holding him and his family in bondage into the summer. And he had to, like, pay union officers to go and sort of trick them out of slavery. For it to be taking place 30 years later, I mean, you know, it's the, it sounds like the kind of thing where someone who had virtually no exposure with other people, you know, was on an isolated farm and was seeing a great deal of, you know, sort of the family that was in power, and they were able to sort of strong arm their way. Um, you, you know, I mean, this must have been some, or one would imagine, with some elements of subterfuge. But, for, you know, Virginia remains rather remote to this day. I mean, I don't think that it's beyond the, the, the pale by any means, you know. I would love for you all to buy some books. Please buy some books. <laughs> uh, good evening. This is more of a request of insight. Having to, having have done the research that it entailed to do your familial history and uh, coming across the dehumanization, as you put it, of, of putting a value on a human. How do you feel, because you know what that feels like, how, would, how do you think someone who does try to do what you've done and come, they find a very short, crooked road of ancestry, uh, specifically someone of mixed heritage where you just may not feel black and dehumanized enough? Mm. Ooh, uh, mm. um, mm. I mean, very, very, very complex. I mean, of course, you know, there's a great deal. I mean, both sides of my family is a great deal of mixed ancestry. I write about that because when I was looking at um, some of these marriage certificates, um, one of the things that's fascinating, one of the most important genealogical tools that you have, um, trying to figure out, um, you know, who was who and where they came from really are the, the marriage certificates from the 1870s. African-Americans got married in droves in the 1870s. You know, as you can imagine, right, this was a great, powerful, tangible symbol of citizenship, of belonging, of humanity, of uh, something that, you know, whites had had, a privilege that they'd had, and, and they wanted to exercise that. And on some of my ancestor um, ancestors' marriage certificates. I mean, for example, one of my ancestors is a woman named Sally Breedlove. It was all these Toni Morrison connections. I mean, I kept getting these Toni Morrison connections left and right. This woman named Sally Breedlove, and on her certificate, it's, um, you know, when she's asked who her father is, it's just a squiggly line on the, uh, the marriage certificate. 
And I think that's the, that's the case for very many people. I, I bring up the uncomfortable fact that Virginia was understood after, you know, a decade or two into the 19th century, it was understood as the place where slaves were produced. And, you know, you look at these, the census figures in 1790, half of enslaved people live in Virginia. And then by 1860, one eighth of enslaved people live in Virginia. You know, sort of what happens, um, I mean, more or less, they sell off the population to Georgia and Mississippi and uh, uh, Louisiana and Texas. Um, that sort of production, I mean, W.B. Du Bois says that it brought on sexual chaos. So I think if you, I'm, I don't know if I'm, I'm getting precisely at what you're, what you're, what you're asking or the sort of the angle, but if you, if you, if you just sort of accept the fact that a lot of this is going to remain quite vague and murky, but you are doing something powerful and important, even to identify the vagueness and the murkiness, and especially the discomfort over, you know, what the where the lineage takes you. Um, I, I think that that's an important and a very important step. And we we might also be reaching an age where some new tools and new things will be possible that will reveal much more than, than we could have known. When I was in high school, I see my friend Christopher Moylan out there. Uh, when I was in high school, I never would have been able to imagine that I would know the names of my ancestors who were enslaved. I mean, it just, you know, it seemed to me like it was in another, it was just completely beyond. And the um, one of the things that they're doing, they're doing this they're doing this in a couple of select Virginia counties, um, but the Virginia Historical Society, they are going through their records, and what they're trying to do is set up a database of every enslaved person who is listed by name or you know, has their name written in one of the documents that they have. I don't know if, whether they're documents that they've scanned or I don't know exactly what their procedure is, but they're mining their records. I mean, they have vast records. Um, they're mining their records for the enslaved in Virginia. That's going to take us take us forward with these stories. I mean, like a lot of the gray. I don't know how um, you know the Hunleys or the Dickinsons. I don't know how they got to um, to Pennsylvania. You know, I mean, I just know that they were there. Pennsylvania is founded in 1767. They were probably in the Tidewater first. You all would be pleased to know that um, I, I let um, uh, Brenda and and James. Uh, the historians that teach at uh, Boston University they write on on the Congo influence. Um, you all know that the people, the 1619 Jamestown ship, um, that you know, was Dutch man of war, but it was actually taken over by British pirates, by English pirates. English are great pirates, right? It's taken over by English pirates and brought up here, um, and they were actually Congolese um, people who probably had been Christian for you know 200 years yeah. by that point or something right it's fascinating the way that the um the religious traditions go on but they encouraged me to take the dna test that i took the patrilineal test you know i mean my father's father father's father's father and the uh the thing that was fascinating what came up i wasn't i had no expectations right i had no i mean i wasn't expecting anything um in fact i write in the book about the way that the Igbo traditions were so powerful in the neighborhood that my great-grandfather lived in i mean they still were conducting some Igbo naming practices in 1870. i just think it's remarkable but um the uh the way that the dna thing came back they said that the closest match and it was it's a haplogroup so it's the it's like the broadest net that they that they have for the dna stuff but they said that the haplogroup 
that close, most closely matches was the uh, the Dogon and Mali. Now, somebody that looks like me, I mean, I would never have imagined, you know, that I would be able to claim that connection. But you know, I'm gonna claim that one. <laughs> <laughs> So sometimes, you know, you get these new tools and you can make a, um, a really rich connection in a place where you thought you would just always have a gap or would always be absent, you know. But please say more to me, you know, when we finish this, if I can say something else. Well, thank you, Dr. Jackson. Books are outside for sale and he will be signing. Thank you.